Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. Julia, I gotta be honest, I was very impressed at how many toll cells you pissed off on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Kate, whatever could you be referring to? So I can't remember exactly what you tweeted, but it was something like AOC is not your friends, but neither a podcast host who makes six figures, which like, duh, honestly, in my opinion, this was like, it looked like there was like a thousand quote tweets or something. It's and- so, I, look, it was just a dumb tweet. I was, you know, blowing off some steam, but it's also not a fucking controversial statement. It is just as stupid to have like a weird stanny parasocial relationship with someone who directly makes money off of you then it is like it's just as stupid to do that than it is to stand a politician i don't know like I I, i'm not i'm not comparing their levels of power at all but so many people got mad at me for this and it then became it became a thing where people were just copy and pasting it and uh tweeting it out to just to dunk on me and I was, uh, and that's how I knew that I've, I've really made it in terms of being um, a person on the internet who I hate. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so stupid. It's like, I, I mean, to me, like the fact that anybody who calls themselves a socialist would be like surprised that under a capitalist system that people would be making decisions to uh, the financial advantage of themselves like of course that's like what we're set up for you know like I I just didn't think it was that big of a of a leap it's a pretty common sense I don't know I I think that you should yeah I think that you should uh as fiercely question the politics of people who make a lot of money by being inflammatory as you do by people who make a lot of or you know politicians who make money yeah i mean i would definitely extend it to media in general and i'm sure Sure. yeah i mean me like you know any podcast or whatever it's i mean that's so the influence is so measly compared to like you know new york times cnn or whatever but like there is you know there's definitely some degree of profit motive in most media and I had this whole force to vote thing you know it really had me thinking about that um I, whatever I've just resigned myself to people hating me for this whatever but you know I mean it's like this is this whole controversy and uh movement generated entirely by media figures, you know, that that had great benefit for their own podcast. I'm not saying that like, you know, it's inherently like bad for, you know, media figures to have political opinions or something. Of course not. But, you know, I mean, like just this whole idea that like the path for the left is going to be primarying 
the most left members of Congress replacing that <laughs> with more left members who also, you know, members who are more to the left, I should say, who, who also have no power. Um, it's just like, okay, you know, what is, what is the real end goal here? I, you know, I, it like, I, I'm just, I'm skeptical of, I'm skeptical of any conversation that involves like strategy being maligned as somehow like centrist BS or something. You know what I mean? Like it's not, I mean, yeah, of course, like you shouldn't stand any politician off the squad or whatever, but you know, it's like, it's also like you can look at what your political goals are and see that, you know, replacing AOC with someone more to her left isn't really going to do anything if that person has no power either, you know? (laughs) Also, yeah, I mean, it like again, this the it's stupid. It's 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 stupid, and it wasn't even particularly about Jimmy Dore. It, but I didn't name anyone in particular, but it could be about any number of people. And I'm just asking people to, like, yeah, take a look at who at whose opinion you inherently trust. Yeah, I mean, Eli Valley had a really funny cartoon that was like, it was Tucker Carlton, Jimmy Dore, and uh, Glenn Greenwald. And, you know, he really, like, it was a good cartoon. He really, like, went, I mean, like, um, at least Glenn Greenwald goes on Tucker Carlson's show all the time. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Dore had that interview uh, with the Boogaloo Boys or whatever, where he was like, oh, can you actually believe how open-minded these people are? This fucking white supremacist group is open-minded. Okay. You know, um, and, you know, I'm not like inherently opposed to people going on Fox News or something, but like, you know, it's it, you, you should be going on to uh, disagree with them. Right. Like, yeah. Like, uh, not just Glenn, to, like, Glenn Greenwald goes on there to just like commiserate with Tucker Carlson about how much he thinks AOC sucks. <laughs> yeah. Or just like cancel shit or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's like I, I, I feel like there is this like kind of emergent media group of like the the little bit of red brown uh feeling to it um and it makes me super uncomfortable i think you know some of that this reminds me also kind of of Seth simons wrote a piece for the new republic today about like just how close like um these fucking a lot of comedians are uh to like actual white supremacists specifically he was talking about compound media and like on gavis mckinnis on gavin mckinnis's show that was on that network as well as on anthony anthony cumia's show they have had you know full-on like violent white supremacists like jason kessler has been on the network um you know like richard spencer i mean people who are like in no way joking and then there's like comedians who are like just uh hanging out with these folks or performing with them or whatever and it's like you know i'm not like the biggest cancel culture person in the world or whatever like i'm not i'm not really one to be like offended greatly at a joke or whatever but at the same time like that's there's not it's not like an equivalent to like nazi shit and i feel like sometimes you know both through comedy and through like podcasting there is shit that is kind of getting genuinely gnarly that is like yeah off as comedy or passed off as edgy uh or even passed off like I think you see on like 
whatever, I'm just going to go for it and talking shit, you know, like you have like Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty um, in on Rising and like that guy is like he is fully right wing like mm-hmm. he's he's a full right wing dude and this like idea that like, you know, the right and the left, you know, can have so much in common together through, you know, populism or whatever, like the, the right wing version of populism, if it can even be called that, like has nothing to do with the world that any leftist should want. It's okay if somebody who, you know, is a right-wing reactionary also supports Medicare for all or hates corporations. Yeah, that's like a, you know, that's like a one redeeming quality that that person has. But like, that doesn't mean that like, fucking nazis or our allies or something that's such a stupid viewpoint i mean there is you know a podcast in the very popular leftist podcast sphere who had fucking steve bannon on their show i don't know this is what i'm saying i just don't i i want people to have a more a more critical view like as critical of 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 you of the people who whose rent they pay with patreon and i say this isn't we have a patreon we are also not having fucking fascists on the, our show and saying that like this is why we make like 400 dollars. right we make <laughs> we make we make no money because we don't say things like it's feminist to not believe aoc's sexual assault account like we are not gonna say shit like that so yeah we are gonna we're not gonna make forty thousand dollars a month on patreon um but you know what i think that we deserve to yeah even even if just for a month yeah (laughs) we'll make five hundred dollars a month from people who really love us and the cats and the cats and if you are a subscriber to our patreon thank you so much by the way so much i like we really yeah we i mean every little bit helps and we are so grateful to all of you we love the comments that you leave on our patreon episodes love you all want to marry each and every one of you individually thank you yes thank you so much um all right well you know i feel like it's kind of a short intro this week but uh Oh, we, we did want to talk about, I guess, the stimulus. Yeah, because we've been talking about this on an ongoing <sighs> basis, and it's amazing to see how badly they're fucking this up. So there's been, you know, all this back and forth. Uh, as, as many of you probably already know, um, it, pretty much out the gate as soon as Biden was elected, it went from $2,000 checks to the $600 was a down payment on the $2,000, so now it's $1,400 checks. And there were some conservative Democrats and definitely Republicans who were uh, dying to means test this to hell. Um, So there was a number thrown around uh, of means testing capping out at $50,000 for uh, your 2020 or 2019 income. Um, And that enraged enough of the... uh, enough of the elected Democrats, I guess, uh, who that basically last night the house passed a new version, um, that would be still means tested, but it would be, uh, capped out at 
uh, $75,000 for individuals and $150,000 for uh, couples filing jointly. It's still... Fuck any couple uh, that has $150,000 combined. They're romantically happy and they're doing well, but I still have have the stimulus. Yeah, you know what? Same, Same with me. Also, you know, just again, we wouldn't be having issues. We wouldn't be be having discussions like this if we actually had an adequate tax system for the the wealthy because we wouldn't be, we would just be like, oh yeah, it'll come out of their taxes as well. Wouldn't be this, I don't know. $75,000 is certainly like, the, the cap of $75,000 for individuals is, uh certainly going to help a lot more people than uh than when it was capped out at 50 but it's still like it's just leaving a sour taste in everyone's mouth because democrats won back their majorities running on two thousand dollar checks for everyone not fourteen hundred dollar checks for some people yeah, I mean, who, like, also, who are these people on the internet that, like, are, like, um, actually, uh, 600 plus 1400 is, uh, I, I might have even talked about this last week, in which case, I'm sorry, but just these people are so, it's so bootlicking, it's so annoying. I know. And, okay, so finally, we have a reply guy of the week, um, who is, uh, Brooklyn Dad Defiant. Uh, <laughs> I I'd like uh, I'd like to shout this man out for. Um, let me find the exact tweet. This was really great. This man is a prolific um, member of Resistance Twitter, and he's been he's been active in the trenches, posting cringe for years now. Um, and my uh, love of my life, Phoebe Bridgers, was the musical guest on Saturday Night Live this weekend and he and many other gen x elders were <laughs> okay so here's the tweet here's the tweet why did this woman phoebe bridgers destroy her guitar on snl i mean i didn't care much for the song either but that seemed extra and to me this is like the epitome uh... of resistance poster struggling to find something to talk about now that trump is not in office you know i mean they're still mostly talking about trump how he's glad that he's gone from office you know i just like i saw these fucking people the other day some really big resistance accounts being like ah you know so glad i don't know who the secretary of education is and it's like dude the kids are still in the cages it's not like this idea that like you don't have to worry anymore it's it's aesthetic you know it's really really stupid and callous in my opinion yeah you should still know who the secretary of education is because our uh public schools are still a fucking mess (laughs) all right so you know speaking of public schools and like you know fixing things in general we did talk to a very cool guest this week um named jasmine carr who is running for city council right here in queens and you know some of the conversation was specific to new york city but i also think that we covered topics that are really gonna be relevant outside of new york city as well uh you know decarcerating schools um fucking uber and lyft and what they've done to taxis really interesting conversation about taxi medallions so i hope that you listen to it jasmine is super cool 
um, you know, she's very beautiful. She's 24 years old. And yet somehow I'm still a fan. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. true. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fans. All right. Thank you so much. Hello. Welcome back to Reply, guys. We are here with Jasmine Carr, who is running for city council in District 23, Queens, where we know, you know, probably most of you don't live, but we're so excited to have her on the show because she's so cool. <laughs> and she's a 24-year-old running for office. We love that she's running for office. We, we hate, hate that she's 24. Like <laughs> uh, that's fine. But, you know, what, look, whatever a 24 year old can do that's not just posting right. being 24 in a way that makes me feel bad about myself. So. Right. Well, hey, good news. I'm turning 25 next week. So maybe that makes it better. Well, it, you know what? It sure doesn't. But uh, <laughs> but happy birthday to you. And yeah, that's uh, that's great. I can't, you know, on this show, diametrically opposed to everyone who is younger than us. Nice. But you seem great. So <laughs> we're willing to make an exception. All right. So let's go into, let's just jump into it. So aside from, you know, you're 24, we've established that. Tell us a little bit about your redeeming qualities. As a- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a few if I could just, you know, list them off. I mean, you know, for me, I think it's been really dope to be a Queens DSA member for the past year. I'm coming up on a one-year anniversary at this point, I think sometime real soon. So that's incredible. Uh, for me, I cut my teeth in a lot of organizing. So I'm born and bred and part of this district and probably one of the more unexpected candidates to come out of the suburbs uh, for DSA. Um, you know, I'm really excited to be someone who's bringing an organizing effort, someone who's been in immigrant justice work, survivor justice work, uh, and bringing those chops to something that is really going to transform not just my district, but our whole city, because uh, we're going to really need that people power to build up in 2021. And again, when I have to run in 2023. So we're in it for the long haul here. Yeah. Okay, so I got to be honest with you. I don't really know, like, a ton of what, you know, a city council member might do on a day-to-day basis. Like I know this, this saying all politics is local and I definitely believe that. And unfortunately I like most people probably pay more attention to like federal and state politics, but I'm very excited to have someone on that can talk about like the shit going on in NYC. Um, can you give us a little bit of like, you know, just insight into what the day uh, of a city council member may look like. Yeah, I mean, definitely the flavors of city council are probably not as thrilling or exciting as what AOC is probably up to uh, in DC and in in Congress. But, you know, this is some of the, the bread and butter stuff that we work on is everything from repairing the roads that, you know, make up our city to deciding which new developments are gonna bring in, are gonna come into our city and actually win affordable housing. So like two of the big, big things that come out of our city council is that negotiation of the mayor's proposed budget and we all want to fight de Blasio, right? So we're really ready to, to fight him on that budget and to decide on something called land use when rezoning, which is how we decide where the next developments are going to crop up. How do we zone for affordable housing and who gets to continue living in here? Who gets displaced and who gets to stay? Um, so these are some of the biggest things that a city council member will do. And then they also just work on really hyper-local projects. Like where do we allocate funding for our public schools? Do we need another park that's implemented in our district? How are we going to repair and implement bike lanes and busways in our district too, right? So it runs the gamut of some of these really local projects to things that I think even are putting a national eye on New York City, right? This is where 
everyone's excited to work. Everyone's excited to figure out who the power players are. So, you know, those are some of the things that are really going to be critical for us in the new year. And, uh, Hopefully we'll get a new mayor to fight <laughs> in the next Yeah, but, Yeah, man. Uh, de Blasio sucks. I know that, <laughs> you know. I, I, I do worry sometimes uh, that someone worse will pop up in his wake. And I do mean Andrew Yang. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is Andrew Yang going to win? I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't like... I haven't been following the NYC mayor's race super closely. I've been meaning to catch up on it. And at the same time, I've been like, you know, I've been enjoying my life a little bit, having a, a mental health, you know, respite from politics, not because I'm back to brunch, because <laughs> I no. have clinical depression. Right. We are not going to brunch. <laughs> yeah. So um, relatable. So, yeah, you know, that's why people listen to the show. They just <laughs> To us uh, and our cats. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, this show is about cats and it's about clinical depression. Hold on, I'm going to show uh, Jazzy, my cat. Give me a second here. Oh my God, wait. If my cat weren't all the way upstairs, I'd bring her down, but... I know, my... Oh my God. This is, oh, a, a, this is Pearl, otherwise known as Little Pearl or Little Tiny Pearl. Little uh, Tiny Pearl. That's my I mean, is it a cat unless it has like 90 different names? You gotta name the cat many things, right? So, you know, it's like, um, all right. Here's the issue that I think about every day with yeah. local politics, especially before the pandemic, uh, is the fucking disaster that the, uh, you know, the New York public transit is, and especially like the subway. I mean, why <laughs> is it so bad? I know. I mean, I know part of the reason it's bad is because Cynthia Nixon did not win. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So let's, if you could shine some more light on that, we'd super appreciate it. Yeah. So the other person we kind of have to blame for, you know, awful MTA system is our favorite bestie, Governor Cuomo. We, so. Yeah. <laughs> We have, I mean, he is, we might as well just be every episode uh, throwing darts at a picture of his face. We, we he is no friend of the show. Yeah. No. Um, but I, yeah, we know that uh, part of, part of the big, the big issue, correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, New York City doesn't have home rule with our, uh, a lot of our, our money. Um, so a lot of the decisions on what gets, gets funded and what doesn't, uh, is decided in Albany where they don't care about us. <laughs> Listen, like we don't get a say in what happens in that budget as city council members, but even like state legislatures barely get a say based on what the constitution has kind of not locked them out of being able to negotiate Cuomo's budget proposals in, in the first place, right? So we would work on things like how can we implement street calming policies? How can we implement bus lanes and bike lanes that are actually protected and not just some flimsy plastic poles that try to protect you from these massive vehicles that go across our street? And so it really comes down to a lack of agency, right? But we've tried municipal control of the MTA and even that was awful for a bus, uh, for a bus system out here. So it's an amalgamation of things um, that have put 
cars at the center of everything. We all know that uh, the majority of New Yorkers don't even own a car, but you look at places like District 23 and this is suburbia, right? People own cars out here, but they get the most say in how our policy moves forward. And they're the members of our community boards. They're the members of decision-making bodies on like the MTA, like uh, Department of Transportation board. So people who aren't even riding the subway, people who have never spent time in between tunnels trying to get cell service to get on Twitter or scroll through their social media are the ones making the decisions about how our public transit moves. Yeah, I mean, it's just been such a debacle. I mean, I know the, the conversation about like what was going on with the L train got subsumed, you know, by the pandemic, I think in large part, <laughs> but you know, there's just been so much back and forth of like, are we shutting this down? Are we, you know, it's just, it's really confusing. And it's, it seems so badly mismanaged and also like, you know, it just becomes like more and more of a, an unreliable means to get to work uh, every day for, you know, the majority of New Yorkers are relying on it. Yeah. That's, that's the real, that's the real thing is that the, the people who are deciding on, uh, on our budget for the for the MTA have never been late to work because their train just was only running every 20 minutes or something like that or delayed service or their um I've had you know how many times have I and all of us in New York have uh we had trains that have just been completely taken out of service. Like, yeah, no, it sucks. It's like you can be <laughs> delayed on the train for so fucking long. It, it just hasn't happened to me in a while, honestly, because I've you know been working from home since the pandemic. But um, yeah, I mean, it also, you know, I'm not gonna lie, it kind of screws up like dating because everyone yeah. knows that the train is late all the time, right? So you know, you're 15, you're 20 minutes late, ah train issue okay but then <laughs> when you get people that are like an hour and a half late they're like the train I'm, okay you know it, it's just me as a person <laughs> I don't know how to trust anymore you know like why I'm late is probably just me as a person it has nothing to do with MT it's just me as a person just being late it's an amalgamation of things <laughs> I mean like that's what it comes down to you know what I mean like I personally miss trotting down to the subway station at like two in the morning, knowing that there's going to be a train there waiting for me, no matter how late I choose to stay out. But even that's not a possibility anymore. But apparently we can have 24-7 COVID vaccination, but not 24-7 service to actually get there in the first place. So some people aren't talking to each other and that's going to be our job to figure out that they're going to yeah. be communication. And also the, I mean, just even the fact that we still have swipe cards uh, uh, for the MTA is right. absurd. Every other major metropolis in, you know, the Western world <laughs> has had tap cards or something like it for over a decade now. I mean, listen, we don't even have a subway station in my district to begin with. We're, we're like all buses. So my friends will roast me for holding like quarters in my wallet. Like I still got, I still rely on quarters. So you're talking about like a tap system, right? Like I'm still relying on quarters just to get around. So. Hey, don't knock quarters. That's how I do my laundry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We, we live and breathe quarters here in this. this I, in fact, have what I wouldn't do to get my hands on another roll of quarters. It's always, you know, begging bodega guy. If I buy like, you know, a bag of cookies, can I please have some of the change in laundry currency, you know? Anyway. I still think about my Manhattan smoothie guy, a bodega guy. I always wonder what he's up to. It's not the same. 
you know, he's the, these are the guys who tell you like how, how great you look, you know, how great you're doing, ask you how you're doing. You have a great smile. Yeah, yeah, I still see my bodega guy. Uh, we, you know, we see each other in masks, but you know, we our eyes contact each other. <laughs> More <laughs> feminist bodega guys. That's what we need. Yeah, that's what we need. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, so, all right. You know, a big part of your platform from reading it online looks like uh, decarcerating public schools in New York City, which is also something I feel really passionate about. So I was wondering if you could go into a little bit about what that means and, you know, how we would do that. Yeah. So I still organize, right? So I'm technically unemployed now, but I still organize um, aside from the campaign with the group called Know Your Nine, where this scrappy, snarky group of youth survivor advocates who are trying to shake up the face of who holds power in schools. And so when we look at just how um, how awful our school misconduct codes are, um, how much we have to fight against administrations to cut down the school to prison pipeline. Um, these are some of the battles that our city city can take on. And so for us, our public enemy number one was Betsy DeVos, who uh, bravely left her post two weeks before the end of the uh, end of the Trump administration. Pour, pour, pour like, out some Don Pan yeah, Young. Thing. No, but like I've, I've done it. We've all done it where we know that a relationship is ending and we just get, get in at the last minute. Just like, hey, I'm really sorry. This isn't yeah. going for me anymore. Just so you can be <laughs> the dumber. So I don't really think anything else about Betsy DeVos, but you know, I do feel fair, to be honest. Um, relatable stuff relatable stuff very relatable yeah (laughs) i hope she doesn't start a podcast like the rest of these people you know i mean Uh, she probably will with all of the men's rights activists all those mras she was talking about to like inform her title nine policy right she was sitting down with the exact people who felt like if they were being accused of rape and sexual harassment that the the process was entirely unfair to them so that's what we were working on right because when schools um, are the ones violating federal civil rights law under Title IX, the only option other students had to go to to report that rape and harassment was the police, the local police department. And so that fundamental structure of policy hurts so many survivors because we know that majority or a, a significant number of police harbor the same kinds of victim blaming rhetoric are the ones, um, you know, kind of slut shaming many survivors who come forward with the, with their cases, or they put together a report and you never get to see anything that comes out of it. So it's like that nexus of education equity, gender equity, and ending incar- systems of incarceration or in policing. That is so important, especially in New York city. Like we have one of, if not the most segregated school systems in the entire country. So yeah. if we're not addressing policing in our schools, then we're never going to see a more equitable school system. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, cops in schools, it's just so like, it's so unnecessary, you know? Um, I mean, I had an experience with police when I was in high school, which was obviously not even as bad as like most experiences with police. But I was being like pretty severely sexually harassed and you know i went to like the administration they didn't do anything they like asked the police dude to come talk to me the officer or whatever i guess it was the sheriff and he was like well you know what were you wearing why did they hate you and all this stuff didn't do anything of course and then you know like it was just this thing where the brown kids at our high school were constantly getting arrested for like having small amounts of weed and like white kids who did the same thing were getting like suspended for like one day you know and just right I mean, it was so blatant, you know, I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been in high school yeah. for, you know, five, 
six years. <laughs> uh, like Jasmine, I'm four. Uh, and I are famously in our early mid twenties. Yeah, amazing. Canonically, amazing so <laughs> perpetually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, famously, as much as we love our cats, you know, we barely have time to spend with them because our social lives are full. I mean, we are just, we're, God, we are just drinking and doing drugs. <laughs> yeah. Like, I used to do a lot of drugs before the pandemic. I know, no, you're cool. Yeah, yeah Kate, is, Kate is the cool the cool one of, of the two of us. She has... <laughs> She's from California, so she inherently she started on on third base in terms of being cool. Nice. But um, <laughs> I was thinking instead of like uh, my drug use, we could just talk a little bit more about Jasmine's platform, if you want. Throw <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a good uh, idea. All right, Beesh, let's go. Um, okay. A big part of your platform is labor and gig economy workers. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because, you know, we just saw Prop 22 in California. And I'm very concerned about similar uh, legislation coming to New York State. Um, We talk about Prop 22 Mm -hmm. all the time here on the show. But for those who may not be familiar, Prop 22 was a ballot initiative in California, basically written by um, rideshare companies and delivery companies that made it uh, basically these you know, corporations wrote their own labor laws to completely screw their workers, prevent them from having any benefits, unionizing. It's terrible, terrible. And you know, this stuff is kind of on the horizon for many, many different states, um, including New York. And, you know, I was just wondering, like, you know, where do you see that fight happening? What will you do as a city council member? Yeah, so I'm going to be a broken record here and say, again, that's like something that's more not really in the power power of a city council member, right? Like there's ways that we can work around like workplace enforcement, but a lot of this comes at the state level. But like, you know, you look at these um, exploitative companies like Uber and Lyft, they're just looking for the next market to exploit. Like, where's the next state where I can uh, double down on the on the market economy there? And because like that market can be weaponized um, against the kind of workers who are promised prosperity, right? And so a lot of that um, was important to me because fundamentally we need to guarantee a pathway to dignified work, but it's really close to me as someone who's a daughter of a taxi driver. Mm. And so for us, when that bubble burst, so to speak, when that market tanked in 2014, New York City knew exactly what was happening. They were artificially inflating that market to jack up the values of the medallions that people like my dad, these working class immigrants who were promised like, yeah, your medallion, that's worth like a million dollars. You're, you're going you're gonna to do great. You can send your kids to college. You can buy a home. You can put down money for a mortgage. But that promise got lifted out once that market tanked in Uber and Lyft came into the city and kind of took over yeah completely well you screwed us over so for listeners who may not live in new york city can you describe briefly what a medallion is yeah so a medallion is essentially ownership of your own vehicle you're not leasing your taxi cab you get to own it and you're considered self-employed under a city agency like the new york city taxi and limousine commission um as opposed to say like with Uber and Lyft, you're kind of, well, with Uber and Lyft, you're using your own car, right? So it's kind of like something parallel to that, but it's under a medallion. Um, And that medallion is technically uh, like a non-liquid asset. It's worth a certain kind of value that you can use uh, for these things, right? To like buy a house, get your kids into school. Um, But I think something that was really 
interesting that even though Uber and Lyft kind of swung in to kind of change, like, okay, instead of actually hailing a cab, here's a rideshare service that you can actually call up and you know exactly when that car is coming. You can see it turning the corner on the block on your app. Now, a lot of these workers are getting together to say that we need to be in solidarity with each other. Taxi workers, green and yellow cab drivers, Uber and Lyft drivers saying that we don't want to be continue exploited by these corporations who are going to tank all of us together, right? Because we have a united stake in being um, opposed to the kinds of people who are just going to give us poverty wages and nothing more beyond that. It's been really scary. I mean, yeah, especially because, I mean, it's, you know, a, the goal is to eliminate all these jobs, too, like through right. self-driving cars, which may or may not be, I don't know, preventable in any way. Right. But I mean, there we kind of agree with Yang, I guess, on automation and yeah. <laughs> preventing all of that. Yeah, I'm, Andrew Yang sucks, though. I, <laughs> I, I'm not just saying this to, to disagree with Andrew Yang, who is my mortal enemy. Um, but there is more of a degree to which we control automation than he lets on. Yeah, absolutely. So, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but, but these are decisions by companies. It's not a thing where it's like, right. oh, automation happened. I'm just talking about right. like, do right, of course. Do I, Kate, or you, Julia, have any ability to to stop this? Probably not. The medallion issue is just what happened to the the New York City uh, taxi drivers is something that for a lot of us who are younger is very much out of public view, I think. Mm. But there was there was an episode of the the daily about dedicated specifically to it and it has been absolutely devastating um you are i think you're the first person uh the first candidate local candidate i've seen that uh has something on your website or in your platform directly addressing what you know the needs of of taxi drivers i mean honestly the Mm -hmm. the city should essentially like buy out the medallions uh because people people lost their entire future basically like that it's like imagine if you were like paying into your retirement for your whole career and then the thing that held all of that money became valueless almost valueless Mm -hmm. exactly exactly It's, it's really again, it's, you know, I only moved here five years ago. So this is not, or five or six years ago, this is not the New York, like by the time I came to New York, Uber and Lyft were already here. Exactly. But I think that it's, it's hard to overstate how devastating that has been for New York city taxi drivers who are, who number in the thousands, you know, it's, and you know there have been a, a wave after 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 it crashed there were a wave of suicides by yeah. uh new york city taxi drivers yeah. uh, again because they saw their whole retirement just or their 
like all of their life's work kind of go yeah. up in flames and it's so unfair it's so it, it, it absolutely enrages me and I'm sure yeah. you you know you have uh such a personal connection to it as well I'm sure it enrages you even more <laughs> yeah I mean like I think it's just indicative. It's like even more substantial proof that markets can't regulate themselves, right? right? We can't continue to rely on them to give us the benefits. A market can't give you a retirement plan. A market can't give you a pension plan. That's something we have to legislate for. That's something we have to organize for. And that's what we're doing, right? Like as a daughter of a taxi driver, I am my parents' retirement plan, right? They don't have one, right? My mom probably does. You know, she just joined a union uh, like two to three years ago through her, her grocery store, but I'm the one who gets to pay that out. There's so many seniors who are still driving because they never had another avenue of employment to begin with. And I think that's how we kind of get into the conversation about why gig economy workers need to be classified as full-time employees, right? Mm -hmm. Not just these contracted laborers, not just people who are driving until the end of their life. Like my dad's almost 62. There's so many like uncles, as we call them in the community who are like approaching 70 and are still driving because you're pretty much driving until your medallion becomes worth something. And that inherently is undignified. It's inhumane and it's selling away the lives of people who never got to do anything else because their entire mission was, I got to provide for my family. And that's it. There's no agency in that to begin with. So mm -hmm. definitely, definitely enraging. Uh, yeah. It's just, you know, it, it's so disgusting. Like Uber, Lyft, just horrible, horrible, yeah. horrible companies. And yeah. um, I definitely hope that uh, there is a really, a big battle here yeah. in New York City when they are getting close. Yeah, getting close. Uh, when they attempt to do Prop Twenty Two shit. Um, <laughs> in, in closing, here I, one issue I really wanted to make sure to talk to you about is um, the criminal legal justice system uh, in New York City. Uh, wow. What do you see uh, as the biggest issues? I know De Blasio has been all over the place on closing Rikers, which is yeah. horrible, horrible jail. Um, you know, what do you see as the path forward there? Yeah, dude. I mean, this is the kind of, we need a lot of empathy building, I think in New York City to remember that like even people who have caused harm deserve the most basic building blocks of, of a good life, of a dignified life, like housing, mm -hmm. healthcare, education. And I think that's kind of like my North Star and how I approach people about decarceration, about ending like legacies of broken windows policing that like dates back to like before when I was born, right? There are people who have been incarcerated longer than I've been alive. And that's fundamentally like morally corrupt. And so for me, I think about how it doesn't matter how much harm someone has created, you can't lock them away, lock them up away in solitary and confinement, hoping that that'll that'll erase the problem that erases the person not the problem and i think that's yeah. the nexus that and we it, have to fight it, against it was already unfathomably cruel before but now with covid it's right. you know it's exponentially more cruel i mean not that look nobody deserves to be in those conditions no matter what crime they've ever committed but you have people who haven't even been convicted of a crime exactly like it's it's just you, people who are basically sentenced to death by covid who may not have even done anything and not that it would be right if they you know like there's no circumstance in which that would be moral but it's something about it feels just 
exceptionally egregious that people can just be like thrown in jail, exposed to this terrible virus. And there's just absolutely no like legal protection that they have from that whatsoever. Right. And the city had the audacity to propose disseminating Rikers. Like it was a a closed Rikers, but for borough-based jails. That was the plan, right? Originally of like, if we close Rikers, We'll, we'll shut down the place, the institution that people care about, but we'll just build four more borough-based local jails to continue incarcerating people. And then that, that doesn't win anything. Like in our own district, we had a clash of protesters who were fundamentally opposed or fundamentally in favor of um, formerly incarcerated people in Rikers being held momentarily in a hotel because if they weren't, they would be homeless and on the streets. And there's that other component of like, if you're not in prison, you're at risk of homelessness because you can't afford housing, you can't afford healthcare, you can't afford, all of these are tied together, right? So I think we have a lot of work to do in order to, you know, finally close Rikers, right? Say that we're committing to this plan, but also think about how much we spend on the NYPD, right? So we always hear about like the $6 billion budget that we have um, that's allocated to the NYPD, but spending that's being allocated um, by the NYPD is well closer to $11 billion. Some estimated to be about $13 billion. That's larger than some city's entire budget, right? So when we think about the kinds of power the police have without yeah. oversight from our council, there's no accountability that we can put over that I much mean, money. I mean, that's larger than the GDP of a small country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's horrific. And so we barely get any power to say, how can we actually hold the police accountable? There's something called the Civilian Complaint Review Board. But because a lot of these members aren't elected, they're appointed by the mayor who also gets to appoint our NYPD commissioner, right? So there's like an entire nexus of a lack of agency here. Um, Only about 40%, 30 to 40% of police misconduct cases were even investigated or even brought um, to an investigation in 2016. So there's a lot of people who are repeat offenders who are still policing our streets, policing our schools. And increasing the the amounts of uh, brutalization waged against so many of black and brown New Yorkers. Um, And there's collusion with ICE. There's way that ICE and NYPD collaborate to, you know, disenfranchise so many of our immigrant neighbors too. So when we think about how the power of the police has become so ubiquitous, then I think we kind of, you know, start unraveling the conversation of like, okay, how can we kind of reinvest in actual, you know, hello, social services to respond to the most basic crises that, you know, people are actually trained to respond to, whether it's mental health response or domestic violence too. Yeah, I mean, this summer, like, it was just all really laid bare, mm-hmm. like, the, just the disgusting amount of influence that uh, the NYPD and the police union have uh, over the mayor's office. Um, you know, it's just, it's city council and a position to, like, you know, intervene in any way between, like, this kind of corrupt level of influence Yeah, well, I think we just recently moved to get uh, press credentials removed from being housed within the NYPD department. So that's like an initial step. Oh, yeah. I remember that this summer. It was like, oh, if you want press press credentials, you have to like get the NYPD to say yes, which made it very difficult for people to journalists to cover the protests. Right. And then the journalists were being beaten up by the same people who gave them the press credentials. So like that itself is just like why are we allowing that to happen? But it really comes down to negotiating that budget 
and implementing measures that will allow us to even get an elected, like a democratically elected civilian complaint review board to get people who can actually hold NYPD accountable, who aren't just, you know, the mayor's cronies. And I think people from the right, people from the left agree that de Blasio has not done enough to curtail homelessness, has not done enough to curtail, um, you know, violence and brutality. And these are all systems that are as a result of the NYPD. So we have to negotiate that budget. We have to commit um, to cutting that police budget and we have to commit to oversight um, and we have to commit to accountability. Those are all within the purview of the New York City Council and also under the mayor, which is why it's really important. Although nobody wants to think about the mayoral election in February, uh, we really do have to think about who our candidate is gonna be um, that's gonna reverse everything the mayor has, you know, pummeled through in the past couple of years. Yeah, de Blasio is just like, he's such, you know, in addition to being a terrible politician, he's also just an absolute embarrassment. Um, so, you know. You know, at that same protest where uh, folks in Rikers were being held at, um, held at the hotel, we were like fighting against each other. Those of us who were in support, like, yeah, we need people to be housed. And the people on the right were like, no, we need to like, uh, you know, get these people out. What about our children? Someone think of the children, right? Like we're, we're harming our communities, but we all like ended up uniting against hating de Blasio. <laughs> so, you know, maybe we find common ground in that, right? Maybe that's like our bipartisan like meeting point. So we'll, uh, we'll get there. <laughs> Yes, although we do not meet the right wing on this podcast. No, we are not. Anyway, this is a completely other separate tangent that I don't go on right now. All right, Jasmine, yeah. it has been really excellent talking with you. How can people support your campaign? Yeah, so we're always looking for volunteers. This is a 100% grassroots effort. We're not funded by private ca uh, PACs or corporations or NYPD. We're not funded by real estate brokers um, and we're not funded by fossil fuel industry. So we're funded by people like you. Um, you can log on to our website at justlinecar.nyc. Um, at J-A-S-L-I-N-K-A-U-R.N-Y-C. And you can take a look at opportunities to volunteer. If you want to help phone bank for us, we're always phone banking every Sunday and Monday um, to reach all of our neighbors. You can do this from the comfort of your home over Zoom, so no need to, to come out. Um, but if you would like to come out, we're always doing um, weekend canvases to meet our neighbors in the district. And if you want, you can throw down a couple dollars to the campaign too. Uh, we've got a really great campaign matching funds program where if you donate $10, the city matches it eight times. So uh, your $10 donation ends up being $90. So if you don't have a lot of cash to spare, uh, just a little will go a long way. So we're really excited to expand our team. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Reply Guys. Folks, please check out uh, Jasmine's campaign. Follow her on Twitter. Um, it's been so great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They're always with us. Bernie, take us out.
kept walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. 